Tonight, I want to share with you the first of three teachings. Uh, The title that I've titled for this conference, again, for Joe and Karen and myself and my wife, it's a retreat. You guys are missing out, but it's a conference for all of us, okay? And so I titled it Reality, Relationship, and Revival, and I've kind of subtitled it Diary of a Message, Diary of a Message, Uh, or I'm sorry, Diary of a Marriage, of a Marriage. The first thing is uh, reality in requiring honesty. I think that's what I'm going to be talking about this evening. Truly being honest in our marriages, honest with ourselves, men for ourselves, ladies for yourselves, and then honest with each other. And then tomorrow I'll be speaking about relationship and what that requires, and that requires closeness. And then third and final for tomorrow, I'll be sharing about about revival. And speaking about revival, uh, what the Lord put on my heart was truly, it's sometimes with revival, it requires not just a first touch, but a second touch by the Lord. And so I'll be speaking about requiring a second touch. Many times revival does require. So open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 is what we'll be covering this evening. And you might be thinking, wow, Tom's going to be teaching about marriages through the book of Revelation. Okay, there's nothing apocalyptic here going on, I want to tell you. And I also want to preface it to say, you know what, if your marriage is in anywhere of these particular areas, as I talk about these three churches, if you're familiar with this chapter of Revelation, um, then take it, take it to heart, but also be encouraged as well. Uh, because many times, I mean, our marriage, Gene and I, our marriage has been ebbing and flowing and kind of flip and flopping between these particular areas. And I'm going to be likening these churches to our marriages. And again, like I said, if you know anything about this particular chapter, um, you know, don't get freaked out or anything. But, um, you know, some of you, uh, one of you or, or whatever, you might be in any one of these three areas of your marriage even tonight. So before I begin, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this time, and I thank you for your word. Thank you for the word you've given me, God, for those here tonight. Lord, as you know that I've labored over it, Lord, and I've sought you, Lord, and, and, and just desired that it be your words tonight, Lord. So let them be your words and not mine. Lord, give me a clarity of speech and a clarity of mind as I give forth your word tonight, God. I want it to be all of you. Let me decrease so that you may increase. It is all about you, Lord, and without you, Lord God, we would not have really, there would not be marriages here today in this room probably, Lord, but God, that this, these husbands and these wives have, have decided, Lord, and purposed in their hearts to join together as a body of believers and uh, individually as a, as a married couple to come to this place this evening and tomorrow to, to hear your word, Lord, and to be encouraged, to be exhorted, Lord, and also prayerfully, God, even in that, to, to look at areas of our marriages, Lord, that, that you would show us and that you would change us and transform us just greater and more into your image, God. We desire that our marriages, Lord, reflect who you are outwardly and inwardly first. And so, Lord, bless this time. May your Holy Spirit have full reign here tonight, God. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen. Revelation chapter 3 Verses 1 through 22 is the area that I'm titling this evening, one of the three areas, reality. And I do believe that real, in order to be real with one another, it, we need to be honest with one another. 
there's three churches that are outlined in Revelation chapter 3. The first is what Jesus considers the dead church, and that is in verses 1 through 6. The second church, although let's skip ahead and from the middle, but the third church that Jesus speaks about is a lukewarm church in verses 14 through 22. And then finally, the faithful church, uh, which is in verses 7 through 13. Now, if we liken them to a marriage, so I said don't get freaked out here a little bit, but you know what? There is, as Jesus uh, identifies, it says that he knows their works. In every one of these churches, it says that he, he knows of their works. And that word knows means that he sees. And so he sees into your marriage. He sees into your hearts. He sees into the truth and the reality of how you view each other as husband and wife and helpmate. And so in that, we liken it to uh, the dead church, that church of Sardis, a dead marriage. And no one likes to be in a dead marriage. We also look then at the church of Laodicea, that one of being a lukewarm church. How about a lukewarm marriage? And then, of course, the one that we all desire is the faithful church or that faithful marriage to be represented rightly. And as I said, don't get alarmed because of these titles because I'm sure that each of our marriages have fallen prey to the enemy's vices at one time or another, and our marriages then sometimes fall into a cycle. It might be even a cycle of, of craziness. Maybe you had been in a marriage, your marriage was dead, but then God resurrected it. Maybe it was lukewarm, but yet God still preserved it for a greater work. Or maybe you're at a place to where you are demonstrating that faithful marriage because you are still trusting in the things of the Lord. So much so, it reminds me, as you see these three cycles here, or these three areas, that it reminds me of a bad rerun of Gilligan's Island. Maybe you're wondering, are you ever going to get off this island or not? Well, be encouraged that in the end, even those on Gilligan's Island got off the island. I want to assure you that. In fact, I'll read this to you. In a successful 1978 movie made for TV, Rescue from Gilligan's Island, the castaways did successfully leave the island, yes, but had, not, but had difficulty reintegrating into the society after they um, were then subsequently marooned again. But in 1979, there was a sequel. The castaways on Gilligan's Island, they were rescued once again. And the Howells converted the island into a getaway resort. You remember the Howells? With the other five castaways as silent partners. Well, there was a second sequel as well. The, this is where it got crazy. The Harlem Globetrotters were on Gilligan's Island in 1981. They, they were villains, and, they, and a villain was played by this one actor and another actress. But they tried to take over the island. But um, you know what? Ultimately, they did get off the island as well. So, you know, wherever your marriage is at tonight, whether it represents that of the church of Sardis, that being the dead church, or whether it's one of the church of Laodicea, one being a lukewarm church, or maybe you are that church of Philadelphia, that of being the faithful church, we'll take, take, um, uh, take heed to this, but also um, don't worry too much because God has a plan for you. And know this, that no one of us, no one of us, my wife and I, uh, your pastor and his wife, they're, they're, they're no, none of us are exempt from this cycle. And that includes each of us here tonight. 
So I want to begin then with an understanding of what I mean by reality, kind of a definition. And I want you to kind of take note of this because it really speaks of how many times these are things that either I am not even in my own marriage. And here it's what it says. Reality is the state of things as they actually exist. Okay? As they actually are. It says, rather than as they may appear or might be imagined. And in a wider definition, reality includes everything that is and has been, whether or not it is observable or comprehensible, meaning understandable. And then a still more broad definition includes everything that has existed, exists, or will exist. That is the definition of reality. And I truly can see it even in my own marriage, the times to where I was like that proverbial ostrich with his head in the ground, just not wanting to admit the things that I failed in or the things that I've fallen short in or the things that I've messed up in or not noticed. And in that, um, the way that things actually existed, I was looking at how things might have appeared or I wanted them to be or I imagined them to be. Now, in a marriage, which we all are here tonight, or married couples, if we are to be honest, then that means that falls into one of three areas like these three churches. And uh, it could, like I said earlier, even be like an ebb and a flow, kind of at times floating in and floating out, but our goal and our desire is to always be representative of Jesus for that faithful marriage, which is like that church in Philadelphia. Now, the church of Sardis, as I said, the dead church, Laodicea, lukewarm, or Philadelphia, the faithful church. But each of these churches, like each of our marriages, leaves an indelible imprint for us to witness and to learn from, I believe. And that's why the Lord gave me this portion of Scripture for our marriages here tonight. However, there are many, many foundational areas in marriage. Can you agree? I mean, foundational things that you've heard from different teachers and different marriage books and devotional books. There's a lot of different foundational things or areas to our marriages. But one in particular, I think, really can make it or break it. How do I know that? I know that because of experience. Experience is the best teacher, is it not? to hear of someone who has walked through something, you can learn from them and you can glean from them. Well, tonight I pray that you're able to glean from some of the experiences that Jean and I have gone through in our marriage. As I said, we've been married 27 years and we were married initially without the Lord. But the Lord saved us, but yet in our marriages, I and we sometimes bring stuff into our marriages, do we not? We bring it into our marriages or even when we're saved, those things that that we lived in and those things that we, we value that were not of the Lord, we bring that junk into our marriages. And I said, I know because I can speak from experience. My marriage was no different and it began as all marriages do. We were in love. We weren't saved but we were in love. We were waiting, wanting what, what all young couples desire in life, that of enjoying our lives, 
looking forward to a new home and, and the possibility of children even, and just plainly having a good time in life, enjoying life. But something was lacking. Something was lacking in me as a husband. And what it did, it affected my marriage. Not only because we weren't saved, although that was the big part, but because I was morally corrupt and bankrupt. I brought things into our marriage that almost destroyed us. And I thought we were alive. But in fact, we were quite dead. I brought into our marriage pornography. I brought into our marriage deception, half-truths, infidelity of my mind, adultery of my heart. It affected not only my home, but it even affected my job. But by the grace of God, He preserved us for that future work. And within the first years of our marriage, we entered into Christian counseling I had to learn to be honest with myself before I could be honest with my wife. Honesty, though, I think is very, very tough. It's very hard. And it's not so bad in a way to come to face to face with ourselves, but to be honest with our wives, men, because there's shame, there's embarrassment, there's failure. And there's a lot of hurt. So being honest does not come easy. Honesty, this isn't the only foundation, but I believe it's the most important of all foundations. The marital foundation means to have a marriage of reality and is meaning having to be honest. Honest with one another. Let's talk about Honesty. Honesty, its definition, refers to a facet of moral character and is understood commonly as positive and virtuous attributes such as integrity, truthfulness, straightforwardness, including straightforwardness of conduct, along with the absence of lying, the absence of cheating or stealing or anything else you might throw in there. And furthermore, honesty means being trustworthy. It means being loyal. It means being fair. And it means being sincere. You see, like I said earlier, I was morally corrupt, morally bankrupt. And I had nothing of the Lord as, an, as, a, as a plumb line, as it tells us in Amos, to, to navigate my way. Because as I've said to a lot of people, I never knew what temptation was until I got saved. As far as I was concerned, everything was fair game. Everything. And so because of that, um, this is where I lacked greatly. And I brought these things into my marriage. I wasn't trustworthy. I wasn't loyal. I wasn't fair. I was not sincere. My moral character was really non-existent. Although on the exterior, I looked like I had it all together. On the exterior, everything looked really good. Well, the reality in many marriages is that there's a real absence, I believe, as I counsel married couples, a real absence of honesty. Some, I believe, they marginalize honesty by telling half-truths. 
Some may even marginalize honesty by waiting until a specific question is asked. You know what I'm talking about. Well, you didn't ask me that. I've been there because I've played those games. Well, some also may just avoid the truth by not wanting to deal with, it, with anything in honesty and just sweeping it under the carpet until one day the, the, the lump in the carpet gets too big and then it must be dealt with. And sometimes for a lot of married couples, non and those who are believers, it's too late. In any case, the results are the same. Without honesty, you can't have reality in your marriage. This is why I've looked at these three areas of the churches, whom Jesus says that He knows. And that means He does see. And He knows all of their works, meaning He knows everything that you do and do not do, conversely, in your marriage. And He brings to light truth. And he brings to light reality of our condition. So read with me, if you will, the first six verses of Revelation chapter 3. It begins like this. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write these things, he who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful. And strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Verse 3. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore if you will not watch. I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know the hour I will come upon you. You have a few names even in Sardis. Who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Verse 5 He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Finally, in verse 6 He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is obviously. What Jesus sees in the church of Sardis. He sees this as a dead church. That outwardly they have a name for themselves. Maybe of doing good works. Outwardly everything looks really great. And wonderful. And all together. But Jesus knows the heart. Does he not? Jesus knows and sees inside of each and every one of us. And he knows what our marriages are are really, really made of. So this is, in similarity, the dead marriage. It first begins with a facade. This is kind of a progression. Because he says to the church in Sardis, he says, I know your works, that you have a name. That you have a name. And that's where I say that Jesus knows the state of our marriages better than we do ourselves. He knows all of our actions and he knows all of our attitudes about us and about each other. He knows that time when, you, when you're asked to do something by your spouse and you grumble or you mumble or you say something unkind under your breath. Hey, even if we were to think that unkind thought, still we're going to be judged for that as well. 
And so it's really important that, that we see and we know and understand that Jesus knows the current state and condition of our marriages better than we do ourselves. And we cannot be fooled and we cannot walk around as if everything is okay. I tell folks in our church not to leave their problems out in the parking lot, but they're to bring them into the church because that's the place where God can do a healing and a restoring and a reconciling in their lives. Well, we can't fake it with Jesus either. You may have on the outside the perfect picture of a marriage, but maybe away from church, things are different. And that's where I believe we have to take a real honest look at our marriage and our marriage relationship. It's obvious what Jesus sees, though. It's obvious that he sees because Jesus only works in truth and in light. Jesus sees every unkind word. Jesus sees every hostile thought that there is. Jesus sees the dead things in our marriage. Yet if we surrender our marriages to Jesus, He will restore. Scripture says in Revelation 21.5, Then He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Jesus can take that of which is dead and bring it to a resurrected life. Joel 2.35 says, So I will restore you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, the chewing locusts. You see, and I look at that verse and I say, you know what, that's exactly the things that have gone on within my marriage at times. Things that have gone on by the world. And the world tries to swarm around us with busyness and scheduling and iPhones and iPads and different things of that nature to where we're so busy the enemy just swarms around us and overcomes us. Then there's also the crawling locust, those things that are maybe below us, things that, that are around us, always trying to get at us. And then there's the consuming locusts, those of which truly devour everything. Things that come and hit us out of nowhere, although they have always been crawling around us or swarming around us. And then finally, there's the chewing locusts, the ones who really have no mercy. They chew you up and spit you right out. That, that, that's how I tell our congregation the world is. The world does not care for you as Christians. The world does not look to a Christian marriage as anything that is of value or of benefit. And the world, like the chewing locust, seeks to devour because its model is the prince of the air and the prince of darkness, that of being Satan. Plain and simple, the world has nothing to offer us. But we have to be honest, guys. We have to be honest so that if you see something, you need to say something. And you need to get back to the things that will restore and will reconcile. Now the second thing is the plan. In verse 2 and 3, here's the plan of Jesus. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. You see, Jesus here gives us a design. He gives us a plan when 
Previously, he says, I know your works. I, you have a name, but you are dead. This, I believe, gives us some hope. I think there's great hope in this because Jesus gives us three simple things within this, these two portions of Scripture. One is preventative or to prevent. The other is sustain. And the third is to get back. The first one of prevent, he says, be watchful. Know this. When the Bible says be, it's a do word. He says, and in the, in the literal sense of be watchful, it says, he says, do watchful. It's something of an action that we must be doing. So do watchfulness in your marriage. Look out for those things that might try and gnaw at your marriages, chew or consume or swarm like those locusts. So do vigilance is what he is saying. Be vigilant about your marriage. James 1.22 tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers because otherwise we're just deceiving ourselves, are we not? We're thinking that it's one way. And remember, if we go back to the, to the definition of reality, that is one of the, one of the definitions of it. Uh, on the flip side of it is, is just thinking that things are okay, but it's only a deception. And the devil wants to deceive you and he wants to lull you. Well, be watchful. Do vigilance is what Jesus says. Let me ask you all a rhetorical question. Two of them, actually. When you feel yourself getting run down, what do you do? You know, if we feel ourselves, we take a vitamin or we get better sleep or we, if it's something different, we, maybe we go to the doctors and we get preventative type of help. The second thing is, is when you see part of your house that needs tending, what do you do? Well, you're going to take care of it, are you not? You're going to maybe have someone come and fix something or you're going to correct something, whatever it is, you are going to be watchful, do vigilance with those things. So let me ask you this question. When your marriages are exposed to the elements of this world, and if we are not actively watchful, then guess what? Things can infect our marriages. But what can you do then? What's the remedy? How do we change that situation or or make that thing that situation better well a few things and you guys probably can think of more but these are just a few one is talk and listen to each other i think one of the things as i kidded earlier i do a lot of good listening to my wife but she equally listens to me as well and we talk and we communicate i know that word communication might be overused but it's so vital within a marriage because marriages, we, we need to be talking to one another, expressing one another. We are made for relationship. And I'll talk about that tomorrow. But you and I have been made to be relational with one another. We're not to be living in our homes like roommates in the same room or in the same bed. But, but our hearts and our minds are far away from the situation or the place. And so we need to be talking and listening to one another. Also, you need to be building up your, your immune system in your marriage, for your marriage, such as what you're here doing tonight. As you're separating yourself, you're sanctifying yourself, setting yourself apart so that you will build up your immune system. 
that you will know what to be watchful for, that you will understand better the wiles of the enemy and what he seeks to kill and destroy and, and rip apart and deceive and to trick you. Thirdly, it's look honestly, look honestly and take care of any infections. I think it's really important. I know each of us, if we have a cut on our hand, we're not going just to let it be, but we're going to put some antiseptic on it. We're going to watch it. And if it starts getting red, we're going to take better care of it possibly. So no different, I think, we should be for our marriages as well. Is that we should look honestly, be vigilant, and that we should take care of any infections that we might see. Other than being preventative, there's also sustain or sustaining. Jesus says, strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. You see, Jesus has hope for your marriage. Jesus has a lot of hope. He says, listen, I know things are looking a little bit kind of like on their last leg. They look a little gaunt, possibly. A little bit like they're going to check out at any time. But God says, you know what, that's still something. See, and that word remains means residue in the Greek. Because that is what's kind of left over. Sometimes the world just racks our marriages, does it not? I mean, just leaves us kind of wasted. But there's still something there, says the Lord. And Jesus, having so much... Man, he is so faithful and he loves us so much. He says, strengthen the things that remain. At least do that. Because there might be some things that you're willing already to give up on. To not deal with. Maybe things that, that, that you're in your last rope in some areas of your marriage or whatever it is. And, and Jesus says, no, no, wait. I want you to listen to me. Because those things, those things that are of residue residual, kind of left. Those are things that you can strengthen with His help. Those are things. And Jesus finds value in the things that are even left over. Well, in that, He says, strengthen it. And in fact, that word really means, when He says strengthen, it means Literally, be salvaged. You think of salvage work. What do they do? They pick up things that the world has tossed away or has been sitting in the ocean for 50 years and they salvage it. Why? For something new, for something different or some better use of it. And you see, and that's what God wants to do. He wants to strengthen. He wants to salvage these things. That's why he says in here, he says, the things that remain, the residue, the leftover, whatever you may think is not worth it, God surely has a different view of it. Don't give up on things that are good, no matter how much is left. Every good thing, every good thing can be resurrected by the grace of of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, there's hope. There's hope. Even when things seem to be ready for the grave. Even when they seem to be ready for the boneyard. Jesus says there's hope. First Peter 1.13 says this, 
Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have to rest our hope upon the grace of God because He's the only one that can restore and reconcile and bring things back to new. It's by the grace of God that brings the strength to overcome and to be victorious. If there have been things in you, I'm sorry, if there have been things you have left, let the enemy take from you. Whatever he, he's taken from your marriage, then there's hope as well. 1 Peter 1.3 says this, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, Jesus is in the business of bringing dead things to life, is He not? He's in the business of resurrection. Jesus is in the business of, of salvaging things, strengthening things, that you and I seem to think are unsalvageable, are not enough. Oh, oh, I, it's not enough because we've gone too long in this situation or we've gone too long in this circumstance. There's no way we can gain back what we had before. Ah, Jesus sees it different. The third area is to get back. You see, at that point in time, when you recognize and you begin strengthening the things that God wants strengthened in your marriage, and you find that there's value in the salvaging, even there's a lot of, there's a lot of even Christians who will say, yeah, go ahead, leave him. Go ahead, leave her. You know, but my wife and I, Jean and I, will always say something to people that are in a challenging situation. And we'll say, you know what, you have an opportunity to prove the Bible right. You have an opportunity to be submitted to the will of God. You have an opportunity to be submitted to the love of the Father and to be submitted to His Word and say, Lord, I know it's tough and it seems hopeless, but I want to prove the Bible right. And when two people can agree, guess what? They can walk together, can they not? And in that, when you are there and you are... Even things that you think are hopeless, even things you think have not been or think cannot be resurrected, Jesus says, guess what? It's time, it's time to get back. Get back to believing, get back to the mechanics of growth in your marriage. I'm not saying it's not work. I'm not saying it's easy. Lord knows, Gene and I, through our years, have gone through, I mean, years, I forget now, year seven maybe was the year where Gene and I were like, you know what, there came a time to where I didn't even care where she was, what she did, or whatever. And it wasn't Gene who was doing anything wrong, it was all me. It was my attitude, it was my heart. And I frankly, and we frankly, were gearing towards and leading towards possibly separating, obviously, but then also divorce. And, it, and I think about that night, and it kind of scares me that I was actually contemplating that. And, and I truly had this, 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 what I felt was 
no love or I felt that there was a disdain or I felt that there was just something not worth it anymore. And I'm, and I'm sitting with the Lord one day and we were believers. And I'm sitting with the Lord and the Lord just kind of just came and hit me upside the head. And as I was thinking of ways to exit and to not be apart, and the only thing that would have kept us together would have been our children. But frankly, the Lord just said to me, well, you love your wife. And I'm like, yeah, a little. See, it's that residual, it's that residue. There was something left that God saw that I didn't. And he revealed it to me. And he says, you know, Lord, and I said, Lord, I do. He says, then be obedient. Love your wife like I love you. And begin a work, because I can do it. And I think about it now, and I think, I shudder at the thought. And it's like, I I think about those things and those thoughts and the situations and circumstances, and I can't believe that I was even there. I never thought I'd ever be in that situation. But praise God, we celebrated 27 years. And we're on to 28th in April. All by the grace of God. But there were two people who wanted to Prove the Bible right and say, Lord, I know it's tough and I know there's a lot of ground that has been eaten away, but it's worth it. It's worth it. And so Jesus, as long as I make that decision and you make that decision, whatever it is in your marriages, to get back to the mechanics of growth in your marriage. That that means to remember, remember how it was done, remember how things had been. I want you to look honestly here at at this because I'm trying to find this. It's in verse 3 because he says, remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. He doesn't say what you received and heard, but how. See, and I think the word how brings to me a word of how did I do it? How did I hear it? How did I receive it? It's something that I think of mechanics and, and there, was a, there was something that I did. How did I do it? Where was I at? How did I receive it? What was the condition of my heart? How open was my mind? Jesus says, remember therefore how. How you did it. It's a condition of my heart. It's a condition of my mind. Do I desire reconciliation? Do I desire whatever God, whatever the, the, the Satan has, has, has eaten away? Do I desire those things to, to be reconciled and come back as one? I've got to remember how. So look, so we got to look honestly at that word how. How did we receive it? How did we hear it? And that we're not to waver and we're to repent. Fully repent. Well, in verses 14 through 22, 
Let's jump over to there because that's the lukewarm marriage. And the, the angel of the church of Laodicea, uh, of the Laodiceans write, these things say, Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, speaking of Jesus. Verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. <coughs> Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is, of course, the second church. This is Laodicea. You know about that. You've been taught well. It's a lukewarm church. And a marriage that is lukewarm, I really can't say, is better than a marriage that is dying. When you look at the two. Because even in a dying marriage, it's because of areas that need restoration. And there is an attitude of just not wanting to. So that means you're cold. And Jesus doesn't seem to want to vomit out a dying marriage or a dying church. But he does to one that is lukewarm, doesn't he? You see, what is it about something that is lukewarm? Well, lukewarm means it's tepid. It means it's moderately warm. It's not even warm. It's moderately warm. It's lukewarm. It also means that we're applying it to ourselves. It's lacking in emotional warmth or enthusiasm or half-hearted. You might say middle of the road, a wet noodle perhaps, wavering, or maybe that attitude of Eeyore, right? A lukewarm marriage, I believe, is also when things get just way too comfortable. You ever been in that situation? Just get too comfortable with each other. No spark, no ingenuity, no imagination, no fun. Now, I can tell you early on in our marriage, or as I went through those times in my life and we had struggles in our marriage... The word fun was, I'll say, a four-letter word in our family. It was a bad word because I did not want to have fun in our marriage. But now I'm blessed to say that, well, my wife is the fun and I'm the funny one in our marriage. But that's the truth. There was no enjoyment. There was lukewarmness. So let's look at it this way. If hot means enthusiastic, wholehearted, or zealous then lukewarm means half-hearted, uncommitted, and indifferent. Conversely, someone who is cold would then be antagonistic, and they'd be hostile. 
Jesus says in context of this chapter about the church in Laodicea that they are lukewarm because they are spiritually blind and destitute, yet they don't even know it. They don't even know it, he says. Well, how about our marriages? Are we hot? Are we enthusiastic? Wholehearted? Zealous? Are we cold? Antagonistic and hostile towards one another? Or are we lukewarm? Just being half-hearted? Uncommitted? Or indifferent? Given these types of examples that we have without showing a raise your hands, how, where would you place your marriage? You know? There's a quiz, no. This lukewarm type of marriage is one where people who say or depict they are enthusiastic about it, who do not commit their lives to a Christ-filled marriage, and this actually makes Jesus sick. Think about it. To vomit means you're sick, and there's something you need to expel because it's not good for you. Well, let's look at this practically for our marriages. There's some things that we must consider from this letter, I think. The first thing is in the first place is if being warm indicates, lukewarm indicates indifference, then we must be zealous and repent, as it says in verse 19. One very important point would then to be to ensure that we are zealous for the truth in our marriages and being honest. Otherwise, we will risk being cold rather than hot. Secondly, we husbands and wives should be very careful at this point to understand that truth and honesty is defined only by the Bible alone. 3 John 1.8 says, We therefore ought to receive such that we become fellow workers for the truth. I look at that and say, fellow workers, yes, husband and wife, linking arms, one, one, two flesh becoming one, helping one another out. Fellow workers for the truth. Anything that is contradicted by the Bible is not truth. And therefore, those who are zealous defend them may actually be spiritually cold if you're trying to defend your position all the time with things. How do you live out the Bible in your marriage? Do you defend your actions and attitudes towards one another? The second area here is if being lukewarm indicates uselessness, then we should really look at what the specific ministry of marriage of which we're called to be. Our marriages are our ministries. You must know that. I tell people all the time, I heard this from Charles Stanley. In fact, Gene had shared it with me. Charles Stanley was talking about the life of a pastor and where his alliances are to the congregation versus family. And he told a gentleman who needed his attention and he wasn't willing to give it to him because he went to go see his son play basketball at a very important game. And he told this man, he says, well, first of all, I'm a person. He is, and it's my relationship with the Lord. Second of all, I'm a husband. It's my relationship with my wife. Third of all, I'm a father. It's a relationship with my family. And fourth of all, I'm a pastor. And, I, and I've listened to that. It's kind of, Gene doesn't know this, but it's kind of like 
resonated within my mind and my heart about even my own priorities in my own life. And so, so, so with that, we, we have to look at these priorities. It's where are we placing our priorities? And our marriages truly are our ministries. I tell people that I was a husband and father before I was a pastor. And that's the truth. And so I will always prioritize them in my life. Before we serve in our churches, before we lead others, sit on a board or get involved in outside interests, we have to know that our marriages are our ministries. We must have our marriages committed to Jesus and we must therefore be committed to one another. The Laodiceans were spiritually, if you notice this, they were spiritually self-satisfied. Because, in verse 17, you say, you say. So they're saying it to themselves. I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have, oh, need of nothing. They were spiritually self-satisfied in themselves. They thought they could see the light. They thought they were healthy and they thought they were clothed. Yet in reality, it was the opposite. They thought they had all that they needed for spiritual health and wealth. And they were deluded. In other words, they weren't honest. And it's this aspect of the Laodicean church that relates closest, I think, to lukewarm marriages. Jesus says the things he has from himself are best. Notice what he says. He says, I counsel you to buy from me. Gold tested or refined by fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed. Jesus right now and previous to this session also uh, says in here, in his word, he says they were also spiritually deaf. See, the Lord gave them counsel to remedy their situation. Remedy their position, yet they didn't listen. He says, this is what I have for you. I counsel you, verse 18, to buy from me. And I want to give you salve for your eyes that you may see. But they don't listen. And maybe Jesus, prior to tonight, has been speaking to you, showing you things, revealing to you things through the weekly teachings here at the church or personal Bible study or devotion or whatever it might be, God has just been speaking to you. And He says, I have good things for you, but are you listening? He says, He has all for your marriages in great abundance and supply. He says He has gold that has been tested to increase your marriage. He has garments of white to cover your inadequacies and to cover your guilt. And he has water of the Spirit, that salve, to cleanse your eyes so you can see or behold what he's doing. There's nothing better than to see God working in the midst of your marriage. Yet the same is for this church, this church of Laodicea, and with the dead church, that there must be repentance. There must be repentance. And we must be wholeheartedly committed to our marriages. We must. 
The third and final example or church is the faithful marriage or the faithful church. That's in verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one's open. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have little strength. I've kept my word, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Verse 9, indeed, I will make of those the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11, behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He he who has an ear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we look at this final example the faithful church, the church of Philadelphia, as a faithful marriage. One that Jesus says, you've, because, you have kept, because you have kept my command to persevere. I think it's important that we in our marriages persevere. The church of Philadelphia was a church that Jesus had set a wide open door that no one could close except him. Know this, they weren't a large church either. They're not a large church. And you know, sometimes we think in our marriages that it's only the two of us against the world. But that's not the case. Because Jesus knows that it's the two of you. But you have Jesus. And He is your strength. And He is your bond together as husband and wife. And so, like the Church of Philadelphia, we in our marriages, and that's why we need each other. That's why you need this church and the body of believers of this church and those of good friends and family around you. You need them to encourage you and to exhort you so that you don't feel like you're so alone. You may be little in the sense of two, but you're not alone. Even Jesus said that in John 17. All you guys are going to leave me. But I'm not going to be alone because I have my Father. See, and you have the Lord. They didn't have much strength. They were little. They didn't have much strength. But Jesus commends their works is because they have kept His Word and they live the name of Jesus out in their lives. Whatever you're going through, whatever struggles are going, or maybe you are in this faithful church time right now. Praise the Lord then demonstrate the things that he's been doing. And let people know of your testimonies and what God has brought you through. They have preserved, he says. They have been tested, he says. And they are overcomers, he says. We can have a faithful marriage if we commit our marriages by faith to him. Jesus gives us this opportunity to walk through and experience marriage that can be faithful. 
This is the kind of marriage I believe we want. It's a marriage that's submitted to Him in everything and in every way. In spite of your little strength, as long as you keep His Word and live out your marriages, you will be called faithful. Too many times we try to muscle our marriages into submission, and that won't work. Too many times we try to work things out by our wisdom or the wisdom of the world. That won't work either. Too many times we deny the Lord by the very way our marriages are lived out. And that won't work either. It's in the persevering, like it says in verse 10, that takes us into faithfulness. Charles Spurgeon says this, Christian, it is not with you that you may persevere or not, meaning it's not up to you. It's not an optional blessing. You must persevere or else all you have ever known and felt will be good for nothing to you. You must hold on your way if you are ultimately to be saved. You have no option. I have no option. We must persevere. And we must rely upon the grace of God. So our marriages can be called faithful if we walk through the open door of opportunities together as husbands and wives. That if we realize, if we're honest, that our marriages must rely on Jesus' strength and not our own. And thirdly, a marriage that keeps His word reaps His blessing. A marriage that keeps His word reaps His blessing. If you remain faithful through the testings, you will be overcomers and witnesses to others around you as He speaks later on in that verse. You can be that faithful church. You can be that faithful church to your wife, to your husband, to your children, to your family, to your church, and to others that see you and know you. You know, you never have doubt, and you never should doubt, of the Lord's faithfulness to you. You know why? Because Deuteronomy 7, 9 tells us so. Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for, get this, a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. It's by the grace of Jesus that allows us to be faithful. You can't do it on your own. You need Jesus and you need each other. Let's pray.